5: Welcome, welcome, welcome. Happy holidays and uh, Merry Christmas soon (laughs) to each and every one of you who are celebrating. I'm Michelle Miao, your host, and I just, I want to throw it out there. I'm sitting here in the studio. It is technically Tuesday. We're taping a bunch of interviews before the holiday break. Um, uh, So, as you know, on Tuesdays, our good friend John Zipper of Commonwealth Club joins us. So, John, welcome to the program.
3: Hello, Michelle. Hello, everybody.
5: Um and uh, I say that I gave that disclaimer because this show that we're taping right now on a Tuesday is actually airing on a Wednesday. Oh my gosh! So let's just pretend it's Hump Day.
3: It's time travel. It's
5: fun. <laughs> uh, so happy holidays to you. Do you celebrate Christmas? Yes, ma'am. And uh, are you all prepped? Are you ready? What are you doing?
3: Uh, We are going to some friend's house down in or the house of a friend. They'll be there too. I mean, we're not crashing their house, um, <laughs> and we'll have christmas dinner with them and their family
5: wonderful and uh you know i i just wonder when gay people celebrate christmas what are there any gay traditions or gay things that you do during christmas
3: not that i know of
5: <laughs> Gaying christian it's not different than being christian and straight i guess
3: um yeah though i know plenty of jewish friends who celebrate christmas so yeah it's people are yeah. doing all kinds of different things for it
5: i know uh, well, my family does celebrate Christmas, and we we're so Do you do diverse. something
3: particularly gay?
5: Um, no, but if you count karaoke, then yes. Oh, no. <laughs> but I think that's you know a, a very celebrated activity by lots of Asian Americans. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I'm trying not to stereotype, and uh, if you're offended, I'm really sorry about that. Um, but uh, my but my family absolutely engages in karaoke tournaments. Um, and, and like I was, you know, saying that we absolutely are diverse, and so we have Christians, and we have Buddhists, and we have, um, you know, unknowns <laughs> who all come together, and we do celebrate. So it's Sounds going like to be fun. It's going to be very fun. Um, thanks for joining us today. As you know, we're continuing our special partnership with Open House, an LGBTQ senior resource organization, and they provide resources uh, such as housing, such as community programs to the senior community here in San Francisco. And this holiday season, instead of doing our usual interviews, I, I felt that there was a need to focus on LGBT senior issues, especially during this time in which everyone thinks, you know, everyone goes home to a family or goes uh, with, to friends or to uh, corporate parties, that's not always the case. And also because I truly, truly believe that we should not forget our LGBT pioneers. Um, lots of the interviews we've been conducting have been from fascinating um, individuals in our community. So please support LGBTQ seniors and their, the issues that they face and make a tax-deductible donation or consider making one uh, by visiting openhouse-sf.org. Our guest today is Libby McLaren. Libby, welcome to the program. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you so much. Yeah, great. I, 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 you know, I, I always open up these uh, interviews. I've only done like four, but, um, but when we, it, it's truly all about you this morning. I hope that that's okay with you. <laughs> sure. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. Let, let's start by um, your childhood. Where did you grow up? Uh, born and raised in Berkeley, California, which
4: was an awesome place to be. Yeah. And, uh, I was born in 1955. I'm 60 now, and um, so I was around during the whole People's Park, and uh, I'm the youngest of three kids, and so I had older siblings who were very involved in Telegraph Avenue and People's Park, and um, turns out my dad was uh, a politician and um, was elected to the Berkeley City Council 10 days before People's Park, and um, that was not only enormous for the city of Berkeley, but it was also enormous for me because he was a Republican, and uh, he changed ultimately to become a Democrat, but at the time, it was pretty pretty intense. So um, it was a wild and crazy childhood living in Berkeley, that's for sure.
3: Wow, how do you think that affected you and, and made you the person you are?
4: <laughs> oh, it, it, uh, thank you for asking. Um, it really did have a big effect on me. Um, it, it drove me, uh, for many years, as far away from politics as I could get. Uh, I saw the, kind of what I thought the reality of it all is, which hasn't changed much really in in time. Um, Now I'm interested in politics and, and, you know, after I came out and um, really embraced the the importance of the politics and the the, um, walking my talk and talking my walk, um, a lot of that changed. But as a kid, you know, as as a middle schooler, I was really uh, horrified at how Silly and stupid and petty, it all seemed to me and and violent also, and so uh, it it threw me threw me into a loop of i don't care for a while and um, in that time, I started to notice uh, the things that really did matter to me, and so it took me a little longer to come out than high school say um, I definitely started identifying with more of the fringe quote fringe element of my friends and people um, at, I went to berkeley high school and and so that was really important because I think, one never knows, but I think if I hadn't been exposed to that odd, extreme um, Republican Democrat here in this beautiful city of Berkeley going kind of bonkers during those those days... (laughs) Um, I don't know if I would have, have, have explored that outside edge of um, how important that outside edge was and how further out that edge actually existed than, than, you know, kind of the core of what you hope to hang on to in high school with your friends and your, your people, realizing, oh, my God, there's so many people out there. And if they stay quiet, they may not be noticed. And uh, that, was, that was a huge realization for me at that time as a young teen.
3: Now, when did you get in, interested or involved in music, and, and what did that mean to you as growing up?
4: Um, that was something I always did. I always knew I'd be a musician. I always knew. I mean, I played the piano you know, as a kid and mm. took lessons, and um, uh, then I went to college at San Francisco State so I could study music. Uh, then I went to school in New Jersey um, at a school that didn't specialize in music, which was my plan so that I could take the train into New York City and study with um, some singing teachers and piano teachers there. So that was kind of a, my ploy to go to a school that didn't require much from me that, so I could do my the heavy hitting in New York and then take the train back to school is how that worked out. Mm-hmm. Um, but music always. Um, and I uh, was involved in music here in in Berkeley and then moved to New York for uh, 10 or 11 years um, with a band that I was in, and at at that time uh, came out and got more involved in music that was more women's music, which is what it was called back then. And mm. so, yeah, so forever uh, music, always.
5: Yeah. I I'm wondering, you know, in terms of uh, coming out and your background in Berkeley and in music, uh, what was dating life like?
2: Um,
4: <laughs> uh, not a problem. Yeah. Um, <laughs> You know, kind of in short uh it was you know i, I i'm thinking, oh uh, good question um <laughs> you know in fact not not a big problem um it uh when I lived in new york uh i i, I guess i i'm i kind of chuckling over here because uh the the bands you, you know when you're when one is a musician you you take the gigs that you get and and someone from a cool band wants you to be in their band and you, you you pass the audition and you get to go on the road and do all these things and at that time when i lived in new york all those years um i did a lot of work in in jazz and um not necessarily in women's music so i was often on the road with bands i was the only gay person everyone would be straight and um so that that was kind of good news bad news you know uh sometimes not so much fun um just saying you know i mean i i, I got along i'm a i'm a happy gal I, I get along with people but um sometimes it was great because clearly i was the only dyke in the in the band and so you know that the women would come backstage and so that that was kind of fun um <laughs> you know it was sometimes complicated but but in short you know not really a problem i i, I grew up in a family um with my uncle who was gay i had a uh, great aunts who were both lovers and gay together. And, you know, I had a, I had a very supportive family situation. When I came out, my dad was like, oh, you're going to tell us that you're coming out, and, you know, before I had even mentioned anything. So, so I, I had a little bit um, of more of an easy uh, situation along those lines than maybe other people did. And because I'm a musician, an artist, I've always been a little bit, like I was saying, fringe a little bit. And so that wasn't an issue. That was okay for me.
3: You mentioned jazz, of course. What other musical influences did you have, and what did you love listening to as a kid? And what really spoke to you?
4: Ah, uh, yeah. Well, um, I really, being a California gal, I really went for the uh, Judy Collins, Joni Mitchell uh, kind of folk folk rock. Um, I'm a pianist and a singer, you know, pri- primarily those two instruments, and so um, it was real stuff for me to listen to someone like Joni Mitchell or Judy Collins, these women who are singing their brains out. The, the funny thing is that Laura Neurich, well she was back east and so i never you know evidently the united states was very wide back then and things that happened in the east didn't seem to travel west or or so i seem to recall and um so i didn't get a hold of her and her music until i actually lived in in new york but to to be more specific in the answer i really went for women who were singing women who were uh, whatever style it was didn't quite wasn't the criteria for me, whether it was Billie Holiday or Joni Mitchell. The point was I was listening to women who are expressing themselves and telling their story so beautifully. Um, so I, I went for I went for women who were doing music, um, and it, it, jazz was really big for me. I, I had a, uh, I have a knack for understanding it, and I, I loved it, and I still do. I uh, definitely still sing and play jazz. And, and then when I moved to New York, I got way more um, involved I dove deeper into folk and folk rock and Celtic and traditional music, which is still remains the big uh, style of music all these years later that is my, my number one, uh, maybe something that people know me for, or um, my partner who is, is now my wife, Robin Flower, and she was in women's music for a lot longer than me, um, way before I jumped into it, and through her learned a lot about traditional music and women's music and how they kind of inter Interweave amongst themselves so
3: and, and was all that with a lot of those influences there I mean the late 70s in New York I mean musically it was just kind of a wow time I mean there was, it was. so much and going and I, on I,
4: right I went there in 1977. Mm-hmm. so I was right in the thick of it CBTV's thing oh, oh. and you know the police were coming to play right around the corner and, and it was it was an amazing time and and it kind of felt like the whole world you know the, the I, mean, I mean this is so um, Uh, I I have to laugh at myself, in my world, it felt like the roof was coming off of the houses and everything was available and it was all good. Mm -hmm. And whether it was women's music or rock music or this music or that music, you know, punk was just beginning to happen. I mean, it was all kind of exploding. And I get it that it was my time and I was in my early 20s and it was, you know, I mean, I I just, fell in love with all of the music and all of the things that everybody was doing, so maybe twenty two year olds are experiencing that exact same thing now, which is of course our hope that we've you know kind of laid the groundwork for kids coming in behind us but mm-hmm. at that time i was I was just really really excited to be able to uh, be who I was, who I am, and um that it was all good
2: so mm-hmm.
4: it was a very very it was kind of like a Renaissance time you know yeah. and, I, and People often refer back to, oh, those late 70s, those 80s, they were amazing. Well, let's all also remember that it was right in the early 80s that we started realizing that our friends, our gay male friends, were starting to get really sick. Right. And that, you know, I think these things are literally back-to-back with each other, Um we had an amazing time in the 70s everything was exploding around us we were free and able to do what we wanted and women's music was wow and everything was amazing and then all of a sudden it wasn't and at at that time uh, you know I I don't mean to leave this interview and I apologize
5: for No no I, we want it to be as but, as raw uh, and organic and the point of it is okay, to also you. tell you know the younger listeners what life was actually really like um before your time <laughs> Uh, Yeah, I love that.
4: Um, uh, I I became part of a a two-person duo uh, called the Bee Beat Girls. Um, My partner is called Chacha Da Vinci. She lives up in Toronto now. Um, But um, at the time, we both lived in New York, and we we got together one day with a, a recording engineer, a friend of ours, and we wrote out this tune, you know, for the same man, which was very funny, the, the, the point of the song being, you're only hungry when I am for the same man, and I, of course, had come out just recently, and this was rather hysterical to me, um, nonetheless, the song came out, and it became this big disco hit, and this was the summer of 83, which was the first summer in the beginning of um, a lot of AIDS. Uh, which, of course, we called gay cancer at the time, um, it was just beginning to happen, and men were just beginning to get sick and go in the hospital and this was It was a wild summer because it it really is the the line in the sand that ended the free i mean it did not end it, but it was the beginning of the end of just free sex and free everybody, sleep with anybody, however many people, it was all good, and it it suddenly became not so good, and um, that was huge, because I was now somebody in the disco world, um, because it was a disco song, and it was was quite a... you know, at the time it was a big deal. Walk down the street, and there was a song playing on all these boom boxes. You know, and and a boom box for those of you, uh, it's a, a huge <laughs> tape recorder, huge, huge, huge. You was so big you would need to carry it upon your shoulder, and it was loud. And um, that was that was quite an experience to have that, and to go from the absolute zeal and crazy lifestyle of that we all had prior to that time, prior to 1983. And then all of a sudden it all started to change. And, you know, we, we found ourselves going to a lot of funerals and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, many, many funerals a week. It was, a, a very different time and trying to hang on to the, the zeal, uh, you know, and that's, that's a good word for that because it was a crazy time. And I was not in San Francisco. I was only in New York at that right. time. And so I don't really know what was happening in this particular area, but
5: um, I probably, uh, you know, a little bit of the same thing, but Libby, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, but, but when we come back, I want to continue with the stories of your life and we'll pick up in the eighties and beyond when we come back. So don't go Thanks. away. Okay. Okay. The Michelle meow show continues right after this you. <music>
3: And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show.
5: Welcome back and happy holidays and Merry Christmas to all of you who are celebrating. I'm Michelle Meow, your host. Our good friend John Zipper of Commonwealth Club is here with us today. And during this holiday season, uh, we're producing a program in partnership with Open House, a nonprofit organization right here in the San Francisco Bay Area that services LGBTQ seniors by providing resources on housing and community programs to uh, enrich and empower their lives. And so part of what we're trying to do here is, is to, to basically highlight some pioneers in our community, the LGBTQ community, and so that you'll never forget uh, our history. And uh, also in looking in the future, you also never forget that we are all aging. And those, So those issues will all be ours. And so our guest today is Libby McLaren. And uh, I'm going to throw this out to John because John has done some extensive research <laughs> about Libby and her uh, musical career. So, John, take it away.
3: Uh, Libby, I don't know how extensive my research was, but uh, we were just talking about the, the Beat girls. And did I read correctly? You worked there or you had an opening act uh, with Madonna. Who was Madonna? Yeah, she was... <laughs> what was she like okay. at that time
4: um let me think uh, yeah, i'm gonna, <laughs> i'm going to circle around this for a minute and see if i can come up with a good answer for that um we were really popular um the bb girls and we had the big hit that summer of 1983 uh, all along the east coast it was it was really fun we'd get picked up by a limousine i mean again i was uh, in my young 20s you yeah. know this was quite a big deal for me here um pick up with the limousine and they take us to Atlantic City or somewhere up, you know, Connecticut or New York, you know, wherever it was, we were, we were definitely um, having a, a, a good time of it and they wanted to put in this, this new singer um, named Madonna to be our opening act. Uh, she had a new song that was going to come out called Holiday and we thought, you know, oh, that's that's, isn't that nice? You know, that's great. And she'll be our opening act. And, and she was. And um, we, we all know that she uh, passed us in, in the uh, fast track and went, <laughs> went on to become Madonna. Um, at the time, she was young and inexperienced. And um, she, <laughs> she used to kind of sit and watch us. Uh, do what we do now. I just want to be clear on this: the the, the two of us who were the BB Girls, Cha Cha, was the super sexy, super awesome dancer, super amazing. You know, kind of she could do everything, and I was the musician in the group. And so we we were very clearly defined on that. I don't call myself a dancer, and I never did, and I never will. And she could Cha Cha really can dance, and she could really dance. And so we would see, we would see Madonna kind of backstage, like trying to do the moves and trying to do the thing, and and I. I I still swear forever and ever that Cha-Cha Da Vinci is the person who influenced Madonna to be the person that Madonna is. Um, she does dances like Cha-Cha. It, it's kind of an amazing thing. That, that That's a bit of a circuitous answer uh, to the question, what was she like? She was friendly. She was competitive. She did not like being the opening act. She definitely wanted to be the, the superstar. And I believe that she actually had a good vision on that because that is all that she became. But at the time, she was just kind of a, she was a newcomer on the scene and, you know whether she was good or not, eh, you know she was trying her best, and um, you know clearly she clearly she had something going on so right well, talking
3: yeah. about your interest in, and, and involvement in women's music, do you think she took it then in, in a different direction, or do you, do you you know do you think it differed kind of from what you you and and other folks have done with it? because obviously she became an icon:
4: Oh, she took it in a completely different direction. Yeah. To me. Yeah, that's a really astute question there. Um, uh, Let let me think how to answer this um, clearly. I think that women's music was very involved in the politics of being a woman and the politics of change, and I, Though I had met and have talked to, and and even in future years, I have been in situations, Warner Brothers records, this and that, with Madonna. And so, I, you know, she, if she came to the door, I would know who she was. She wouldn't know who I was. So I don't mean to present this differently than it actually exists. However, in terms of your question, she, hers was not a political pursuit. Hers was, I want to get famous. I'm going to get famous. I'm going to be a freaking superstar. Watch. And that's where she went.
5: I need so. to have that kind of attitude in my <laughs> life, whether that's gardening or doing something. I'm just yeah, I'm right. gonna be a superstar. Yeah, um, I'm gonna be a superstar. Yeah. yeah.
4: So yeah, well, she took it in a completely direction, different direction than what women's music would be. I would never, I would never even think of her as being women's
2: music.
5: I uh, I, I want to bring it back to when you came back to the Bay Area, and also, I, I, I mean, I have two questions I want to throw out to you, um, and uh, You know, and that's the fact that women's music also, during the 70s, 80s, was also political, and even political right now. As um, if you're reading up on, you know, the women's uh, music festival, the Michigan music festival, right? Um, There's a you know politics there, and the uh, the term even feminism has changed um, regarding the inclusion of even trans women. And I just thought maybe kind of what that meant to you, as you'd mentioned earlier. You got into politics as well, and how have how has your politics changed? And did it change when you came back to the Bay Area?
4: Um, no, it didn't. Um, in fact, if anything, it just became more so because here is a more politically active location than New York City, per se, or at least who who I who I hung out with there versus who I hung out with here. Um, I think that. Um, hmm. Let me think. Right now is a beautiful and wonderful and a renaissance time um, in in our in the evolution of gay politics. You know, gay people, the the whole LGBTQ. I mean, it's it's an amazing time. And as a as a kid, as a youth, um, I hope that things are so much easier than they ever were before. However, bless their hearts, they definitely they being every new generation, certainly our generation and. Every, everyone in front of us and everyone behind us, um, you know, pushing the boundaries, which um, is part of the fun and part of what a uh, generation gets to do. And I look at these generations now and I think, oh my gosh, would my grandmother be amazed? You know, just, you know, you finally, you, you think, oh, long hair, that's a horrible thing, and then everyone gets used to long hair, so it's no big deal. And then it's tattoos, oh my god, tattoos, and, and then it's old oh, piercings, oh my god, and now it's transgender, oh my god, and, and you think, you know, it's, it's uh, I, I hope that our generation has um and 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 who we learned from and and who we pass it on to um it, into the future that everyone um realizes there's a lot of work that has gone into making available what is available and making things safe to be transgender or you know in the process of of you know literally changing your body to become a different kind of person and a different gender and and all of the politics that go along with that and the absolute necessity of someone of my age to be welcoming, open armed, loving. Um, it's so easy to be kind. And if there's anything that any of us have learned, I hope, it's that it really is easy to be kind and to be welcoming and to say, you know, where are you coming from? And and, and who are you? And where do you see yourself going? And that's, that's part of the joy of being a, a little bit kind of an older person as I look at kids in their 20s and, and friends and, and children of people that I that I know that, you know, they're out there exploring their own thing and stretching their own boundaries, and I, and I say, you know, go for it. Um, the politics here are more active and more deep for a reason, I, I don't know, maybe just because it's California than it was in New York, but certainly coming back here, uh, my politics didn't change, but perhaps the the prevalence of the ease with which to talk about it and to be exposed to and go to mm-hmm. speeches and, and concerts where politics talked about i mean that that's different for sure but now i just feel like things have really leveled out playing field is a lot more even and maybe that's just because i i don't care um if somebody doesn't like me or what i do i mean i think there comes (laughs) there comes this point where it's like yeah okay so you don't i don't care what you think (laughs) and and when you know when you're in your 20s and you're seeking and searching you know you're busy trying to figure out your your path and you know, you can't tell someone who's younger, you know, like, just don't worry what they think, because, that, yeah, that's a, that's a natural evolution. But I think in terms of politics now, you know, you do what you do, you say what you say, you believe what you believe, and if somebody doesn't like it, well, okay, you know, that's fine, too.
3: Well, speaking of someone who likes you, I mean, can we take it to the personal, then, and tell us how you met your wife?
4: Oh, sure. Uh, she is Robin Flower, and she is uh, an, an amazing um, musician, writer, uh, songwriter, uh, instrumentalist, car fiddle, mandolin, singer, um, she hired me to come in. I had just moved uh, back to this area, and uh, Robin was working on an album, um, and she hired me to come in and, and do some vocal coaching, and, um, well, there you go. You know. There <laughs> you go. <laughs> there, there, there you go. About a year later, we, we uh, had a situation where we kind of started dating, and um, that was that was really fun, and we've really been together since. She from from the time, let, let me circle back, from the time when she hired me, we started doing music together, and one of the things that I'm happy about is that we, we connected on a musical basis as musical peers, as musical uh, inspiration for each other and challenge for each other, and it wasn't until after that friendship and musical connection happened that we fell in love, and That was a long time ago, you guys. Like like 28
2: years.
5: Well, congratulations to that. And uh, unfortunately, we've run out of time. And um, I I wanted to circle back to the fact that, uh, you know, we want to make sure that people remember people like you who've contributed so much to our movement. Um, Thank you. What are your your thoughts in terms of the future in terms of, uh, you mentioned it's a renaissance time or period for us as queers. But is there anything that you're worried about when we think about the future?
4: no i have incredible hope for the future i have i have hope in the generation that is in the 20s i have super hope for the kids who are in their 30s i think these are some awesome awesome really dedicated really brave People, men and women, and all uh, who we are, I think our generation has done an outstanding job of paving the way of, like I say, kindness and inspiration. And I think the people behind us are coming into. There's, it's always work to do. But I don't care who you are, you're always there's, there's work to do no matter what mm-hmm. you are, you know, gardener or singer. And um, I just think that I have enormous hope for the future. I, I am not, I'm not worried about anything more than I ever was. You know, I mean, you, one worries about our future, I suppose. But, but I think the kids and the, um, the the generations behind us are awesome. They are smart. They're articulate. They're they're curious. They are not afraid. They just go for it. And I, I have all respect for, for the future, for the kids who are in charge of, of us as they get, become our age.
5: Libby, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. It was so special.
4: Thank you. Thanks a lot for having me.
5: Happy holidays. Happy holidays. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Don't go away. The Michelle Miao Show continues with more interviews of fascinating people, especially from the LGBTQ senior community, or I should say our pioneers. So don't go away. you
3: And now back to the Michelle Meow Show.
5: Welcome back. Happy holidays and Merry Christmas to those who are celebrating uh, in just a a day or two here. Um, During this holiday season, we are producing a series of interviews with members of the LGBTQ pioneer community, I should say. And that's in partnership with a, a nonprofit organization right here in San Francisco, Open House. Open House is a resource to the senior community by providing Um, housing and community programs and so if you're thinking about making a donation to a charity I would like to say that you should make one to open house uh, by visiting openhouse-sf.org and uh, what we're doing here is producing a series of interviews and uh, our next guest I am incredibly honored to have this person here with us today so I'd like to welcome Pam David. Pam welcome to the program.
1: Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be on your program.
5: Uh, I mentioned that I was extremely honored and I should do you more justice by saying that you're the executive director of the Walter and Elise Haas Fund, uh, which is a foundation whose mission is to build a healthy, just, and vibrant society in which people feel connected to and responsible for their community. And the fu- foundation has been around for quite a while. 60 plus years. <laughs> That's it's, actually, it's actually as old as I am. Um, I, I am almost like a, you know, I, I don't know where to begin. I have so many questions, but I guess I'll open up with something very general and we're trying to get to know you and we're trying to tell your story here. So why don't you tell us about your childhood, you know, where you grew up and, and what that was like?
1: So I grew up in a suburb of Chicago, Highland park. It's a heavily Jewish suburb. And though my parents weren't religious at all, um, You couldn't grow up there without developing a strong sense of cultural identity and social responsibility. Um, I organized my first uh, political activity as a freshman in high school around the right to wear pants. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Really, really hard to imagine that. It is. I'm like, what? I think we're both shocked, John and I. And then I quickly moved on to uh, doing work against the Vietnam War and to lower the voting age to 18. In many states, it used to be 21, but you could be drafted when you were 18. And it seemed patently unfair that 18-year-olds couldn't have a say in the politics of the country. So I um, I got politically oriented pretty early. It was the 60s, and I am really thankful that I came of age in this period of great social movement. It's really shaped my life permanently. Um, and, uh, and I hope that it happens again.
3: Uh, you, you mentioned Chicago, and of course today, Chicago is known as this huge behemoth liberal city. But back in the 60s, I mean, that was the original Richard Daly and the you know very... Uh, you know the racial and 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 uh and other sorts of of politics were very conservative there um was that did that help form you and what you you what how you know the issues you took on and how you did you you fought them or do you think you would have kind of gone the same route no matter where you lived
1: it's hard to know i had i really got to um there were a couple of things one is i was a i was a major tomboy and jock and became a competitive tennis player as a kid, which got me out of my own environment and into many others where, for example, I really experienced anti-Semitism for the first time. Because you grow up in a Jewish community, you don't feel anti-Semitism. You go into a wasp world and you go, oh, people don't like me just because I'm Jewish. Um, It's also, I had the opportunity to... The part of discussions with kids from other parts of Chicago in which, I mean, to be really honest, I came to the realization that what I had in life was an accident of birth, that you can be smart and funny and talented and all sorts of things, but the opportunities that you had were a lot constrained by the family and community and income level and race that you're born into. So I think it was a period in which I became very conscious of the racial divide in this country, and particularly in terms of black and white relationships.
5: Uh, Michelle Miao and John Zipper, we're speaking with Pam David, who is the executive director of the Walter and Elise Haas Fund. Um... I, Pam, you have an <laughs> an extensive <laughs> career, a political of of uh, career, and being active in the LGBTQ community. I mean, just to kind of give our listeners um, some insight, I mean, you came out in 75. You're part of the Bay Area's progressive lesbian community. you were in the Lesbian Rights Alliance. You're the founder of Lesbians Against Police Violence. You're one of the youngest members of the Lesbian Caucus, which was formed after Harvey Milk's assassination. You headed up the mayor's office. Ah, <laughs> And they're still so much more. Let's start with the, with San Francisco in the seventies and with you as a political organizer. Obviously during that time, lots of queer people were mobilized to be political and to be out. Uh, But in your own words, you know, what was that like for you?
1: It was a really vibrant movement. I mean, it was, listen, it was still scary today. It was scary in 1975 to come out. I was, in the field of education, I thought they'd never let me in a school again. Um, but there also were, there was tremendous energy about being out, particularly um, as a progressive lesbian. And, that you know, as the attack started on the gay community, Anita Bryant and John Briggs, and then later with HIV-AIDS, um, the communities changed. I think the thing that was most striking to me was the gulf or the gap between the gay men's community and the women's community. A lot of us came to the gay LGBT movement out of feminism, out of the women's movement, out of anti-war movements, out of national liberation struggle. Uh, for gay men, it was less true. They tended to be more conservative. They had more money. Um, I remember walking down Castro Street in the late '70s and being spit on and called a dyke by oh. gay men. Oh, and I think it's part of our history as a community that we uh, is not well known. That uh, until until a few years into the AIDS crisis, there was real tension between the women's and the gay men's communities. We had different issues, different politics, um, and I think fortunate, you know, the common wisdom is that lesbians stepped up to take care of our gay brothers when when the AIDS epidemic hit. And all of that is true. But the part that is less understood is that we also brought a political analysis to the HIV-AIDS struggle that many in the men's community just didn't have. They didn't understand why the government didn't respond. They didn't understand why there was no leadership from the White House. We, um, most of us, um, understood that, expected it, and knew how to organize around it. So what's frustrating to me is we're such an ahistorical society in general, and that we... uh, we tend to lose the nuances of real history and real relationships and the, and the tensions and the ups and downs that happened.
3: you were an organizer of the 1987 LGBT March on Washington. I was. What, 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 what were you trying to get out of that? And, and did it work? And, you know, did it, was it what you had hoped it would be?
1: You know, I don't know. I don't know if I knew what I hoped it would be. Uh, I'd been at the 1979 March on Washington, the very first one that happened right after the White Night Riot, uh, and we carried banners depicting the White Night Riot down the uh, Pennsylvania Avenue. That was kind of fun. And 78, uh, in 87, we're at the height of the AIDS epidemic. There is no word from the White House. And uh there was a great need to get a lot of people out in the street, so I agreed to move to Washington for a period of time and be one of the original two paid staff of the march um and my job was to get people there and we got about three quarters of a million people there wow. on November eleventh nineteen eighty seven and it was It was stunning
3: it was, it was I was just totally to, stunning, yeah, I was going to ask about the types of people show who showed up, I mean, were they all activists or were there, No, you know,
1: no, listen, you have to remember about. 80, you, I, I don't know how old the two of you are, but in 1987, um, our, we were, we were in a war. We were in a war for our lives as a community. I, I mean, it's hard to imagine. Um, Now, but, you know, so many of the men that I came of age with politically in the uh, lesbian gay rights movement in the Bay Area, you know, are gone, and most of them died in that era, and uh, it was scary, and it was hard, and we really did feel like we were fighting for our lives, and there were, you know, we were fighting for a broad set of rights, but HIV-AIDS was the centerpiece of the work, and the fact that we could get one Presidential candidate Jesse Jackson to come to the march and speak and talk about HIV/AIDS uh, was incredibly. Uh, I don't know what the word is. Validating, I guess, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. just that somebody was somebody outside of our community with power and with influence and with voice was actually listening to us and taking taking up the
5: issue. Kim? It was
1: a very d- difficult time.
5: Absolutely. Pam, we're going to take a quick break right here, but when we come back, we want to continue our discussion with you. So don't go away, okay? All right. The Michelle Meow Show continues right after this. More of Pam David.
3: And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show.
5: Welcome back. Happy holidays. I'm Michelle Meow, your host. And of course, John Zipper, our good friend, is here from Commonwealth Club. Hello, John. On the phone, uh, and our guest today is Pam David. Uh, we're very honored to have Pam on with us. She's the executive director of the Walter and Elise Haas Fund and has been instrumental in terms of the LGBTQ gay liberation movement, but also an incredible activist and uh, a pioneer of of our fight for equal rights. Um, Pam, let's 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 uh, let's you know steer our attention from your time in Washington and then your now your return to San Francisco. Uh, in which then you served on the city's domestic partnership task force and you helped craft a landmark policy. What was that p- policy?
1: It was, it was allowing domestic, allowing city workers to uh, register as domestic partners and for their domestic partners to have benefits. And it was the first municipal law of its kind. Uh, Roberta Achtenberg chaired it and uh, there was a lot of pushback. Uh, from various sources, uh, particularly all the insurance companies that worked with the city who thought that there'd be this rush of folks, particularly with HIV, to register their partners and therefore uh, it would cost the city a fortune, and uh, it didn't. Um, And really, if you think about the whole arc of work that got us to to, uh, marriage equality, the battle for domestic partnership really uh, was the first to put a stake in the ground. Who were yeah, some... Honestly, Sorry, go, go ahead. ahead.
3: I was just okay. going to ask <laughs> during this time in San Francisco where you're actually, you know, working with mayors and such, who were some of the political heroes who, who were willing to take on those battles for the LGBT
1: rights? Well, our diagnosis as the mayor mm-hmm. certainly uh, stood up for us very quickly, you know, and, What's interesting, when I first moved to San Francisco, it, it, it was a conservative town, you know, and the, when we finally got to district elections and Harvey got elected, uh, it, things started to shift when Roberta and Carol Migdon were both on the board uh, and then Tom Omiano. I mean, you started to see um, our own leadership develop and not be dependent on straight politicians supporting us. Um, it's um, It's interesting that there are, at the moment, no lesbians on the. San Francisco Board of Supervisors.
5: Yeah. yeah. Well, have you ever thought about running for a political you know, office?
1: I mean, because I've worked with politicians a lot, I've thought about it. Yeah. The idea of having to spend all your time raising money and be nice to people you don't really like, <laughs> it just, doesn't, it just doesn't appeal to me that much. Uh, yeah. I, feel like, I feel like I've been able to have a lot of influence on, on policy, both in the 12 years I worked for three mayors, and uh, and in the foundation world, and that's good enough. I don't need to be an elected official.
3: You did, of course, work as an advisor to uh, Jesse Jackson in his eighty-eight uh, presidential uh, campaign, which that, was kind
1: of a, a watershed of campaign. March. Well, that came out of the March on Washington oh, okay. because our the March offices were down the hall from Jesse Jackson's exploratory campaign. Oh, really. And I was, i my title was the National Outreach Coordinator. So literally my first day in Washington, I walked down the hall. I asked to meet with Reverend Jackson. I ended up meeting with one of his top staff and say that we want to get his endorsement for the march. Um, Frank Watkins, who was the staff person, says to me, well, why don't you go write something as if you're Jesse Jackson in support of the march, and then I'll get it to the reverend. So, I had had done local work for Jackson in in 84, and I had gone to his church in Chicago when I was a teenager, so I knew his rhetorical style, and I went back, and on our IBM Selectric typewriter, wrote something out, got it to Frank, he got it to Reverend Jackson, came back the next day with a few edits, and that was our first endorsement from the civil rights community. And, And out of that, I built a relationship.
5: Yeah. Yeah. Pam, I wanted to ask a a general question. I mean, you know, you started your activism during a time um, of the anti-war movement. And and I don't really know how to describe what the movement is now today. Uh, I mean, there's so much going on uh, politically and globally when it comes to war and violence. Uh, But at the same time, uh, just a few years ago, this country repealed Don't Ask, Don't Tell, in which now we celebrate out service members. The queer community, I think, is struggling with its relationship uh, with the military. On one hand, we applaud them for taking progressive steps. On the other hand, I think many of us are still anti-war, or that's our position on on war. Um, I I wonder what your perspective is on just the, yeah.
1: on On the military mixed feelings, I don't want anybody I know to go into the military. I know people who've been in the military and are wonderful folks. Um, I think it's a bigger issue, Michelle, around assimilation.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: You know, part of the character of being a lesbian in the 1970s and 80s was being an outlaw, being a sexual outlaw, being a political outlaw, being, being on the edge, you know, and now we're like in the center, not everywhere in the country and certainly not everywhere in the world, but there's there's a, you know, we've assimilated to a great extent, which is what this country tends to do to distinct groups of folks. And it's it's uncomfortable
2: mm-hmm.
1: in many ways
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, of losing our sense of identity. And then in terms of progressive politics, we had the same fights about lesbians and gay men uh, joining the police force in the 70s. The women's building wouldn't allow a small group of women cops to meet in the women's building. Very controversial decision. I can, you know, I can argue it both ways to be honest. Right. On the one hand, you want good people to be in the military making good decisions about, um, you know, and it's a huge, important employer. It's also been a vehicle for, for racial integration in this country. Um, so it's, it's it's a mix, but I think we just
5: have to be cautious. I I wanted to follow up on that because you know this is not the first time I've heard assimilation being a difficult thing. Do you think that assimilation uh, may negatively impact our community in a sense that we are risking preservation of our own history? You talked about our identity diluting. I mean, does that does that make you feel uncomfortable about uh, the queer future and our movement at all?
1: You know, every time I go to Creating Change, I don't fear the future at all, (laughs) to be honest. When I'm in a a conference with 4,000 totally, totally mixed LGBTQI folks, uh, many of them young and full of energy and way, way more thoughtful than I was at that age. Uh, Then I'm not in doubt at all, but how we how how we help those voices inform the broader politics of our both our movement and our country, I think that's what's in doubt.
3: You you do talk about you know moving from kind of being an outlaw to the center, and now you're executive director of the Walter and Elise Haas Fund, which is a. A very mean, respected, and, <laughs> but oh, wow, wow. just give us a bit of a sense of okay. So, what are you doing now? How are you, uh, you know, seeing your ideals and and uh, 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 you know the things you, that matter most? to You work through this new org, or not this new organization, but through this role.
1: Well, you know, when I worked for government, I got to manage the community development block grant, and it was essentially being a funder of the nonprofit communities, mm-hmm. particularly in low income neighborhoods. And so I knew the nonprofit sector, and I knew grant making. And when I, uh, when, when this opportunity came up to work for a family with such a long history of supporting community institutions, cultural, educational, uh, social in this, in the Bay Area, um, it was, it was it's a great opportunity. I have wonderful staff. I have great trustees. We try to do work that um, is meaningful and real. And supports um, supports the great nonprofit infrastructure that we've created in this in the Bay Area. Uh, it's got its contradictions; every job does. Uh, but uh, obviously, there's something that's been very meaningful about the work uh, for the past mm-hmm. thirteen years. Mm-hmm. And I plan to be there about two more.
5: Yeah. Pam, I have a a last question for you. Unfortunately, we are running out of time, although I really, really hope that you'll come back on the program um, because you're 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 so incredible. But my last question to you has Uh to do with the fact that you're you've also served as advisor to Open House and in talking about LGBT senior life and the issues that um, impact the queer senior community today. Um, You know, what are some lasting, last words or thoughts around our aging community, and and maybe what we're doing, what we're not doing, what we need to be mindful of?
1: Well, I'm totally grateful for Open House uh, and the fact that it has raised the issue of aging in our community. I mean, it's not just our community that's aging; the baby, we're all the baby boomers are in our sixties now and um, redefining. Uh, redefining being older. I know that the title of this was something about elders, and I'm like, no, I'm not an elder. <laughs> but but it's okay, you know, as long, as long as I understand what it means to me. And in terms of open house, both the housing and the services and the way that we get to age in community is going to be so important. We have to move away from a society that throws people at the ages of 65 or 70 to the side. We need to figure out how to mine and provide places and spaces for a lot more intergenerational work and to retain retain the history and the connectivity and the relationships that those of us who are six-plus decades old have been able to acquire. Uh, To just throw us to the side would be such such a loss.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. And we're going to have, you know, we're going to have different kinds of needs in terms of community. We're not going to go off and play golf in Palm Springs. Some people <laughs> will, But right. a lot of us want to, we've been part of community. We want to stay in community. And that's the promise of Open House. And that's why I've been so supportive of them since it was an idea right. in, uh, in the heads of Jeanette and
5: Marcy. Pam, thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing a piece of yourself with us.
1: Well, thank you for having this program and having to focus um, on older LGBT folks. And thanks so much for your work.
5: Thank you. Happy holidays, everyone. Don't forget about everyone in our community. We'll be back at the same time tomorrow, 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time. Don't forget that John Zipper hosts the week-to-week political roundtable talk that happens every Friday at 4 o'clock on the Progressive Voices Network. We'll see you tomorrow. Oh, oh,